We thank you, O God, that we can come before you because of the work of your Son, our Savior Jesus. We're thankful for his grace and his amazing love for us. As we turn our attention to your word right now, we ask you to be with us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As I time traveled, as I went through time zones this week, I didn't time travel. As I went through time zones this week, from one coast to the other, it's played with my voice a bit. So as I preach, I'm going to try to save enough of my voice for the second service. And I didn't time travel. That's <laughs> honestly. I didn't even watch movies on the plane. I read and slept. That's all I did. So I don't know why that's in my mind. What is peace? Definition of peace, if you're looking at Webster's, is free from hostility. It's tranquility. It's a calmness. When we think of peace in our world, we often think of peace in Israel and Palestine or Russia and Ukraine. Sometimes we think of peace between us and others. For many, Christmas isn't very peaceful. You see people you don't like and you'd rather not be with. Colleagues you wish you could ignore. I mean, I was sitting with one gentleman who was telling me that because they have care of his mother-in-law, she lives with them in a basement apartment, and the rest of them live in other part of the house that has three bedrooms, that because the rest of the family lives in other parts of the world, they all travel in for Christmas, and they all expect them, because they care for mom, to care for everyone. They don't have a big house. And I said, how many people live with you? They said, well, they, he told me they start to arrive tomorrow, and there'll be 36 people living in the house. And it's expected that they provide all the meals, they cook all the food, they just kind of do everything. And I said that would not be peaceful. Would not be peaceful in my home. Not in any way. Um, J.I. Packer says this, the peace of God is first and foremost peace with God. The peace of God is first and foremost peace with God. And we have a hard time understanding that we have a hard time understanding that because we don't understand the depths of our sin. If you're a guest today, you may not even know what sin is, but sin is any time you rebel against God. When God asks us to be generous, when God asks us to be truth-tellers, when God asks us to forgive people, when God asks us to love, and we don't do those things, whatever it is we are doing that is against what God has asked us to do, that's called sin. And our sin, our choosing to rebel against God, places us as his enemy. Places us as God's enemy. You find that in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through the death of Christ, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through the life of Christ? We're God's enemies. In fact, in Ephesians 2, not the passage we read this morning, but earlier on in that passage, it says we're dead in our transgressions and sins. And so our sin causes us to be enemies with God. And the problem then is there's always this hostility in our relationship with him. There's this hostility between us and God because our sin creates this alienation between him and us started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to sin. It remains till this day. And yet God wanted to provide a way for us to be able to be in relationship with him. God wanted to provide a way where there would be peace. 
When you look at warring nations, there's often root causes as to why those nations are at war. It's complicated, often perplexing. But with our relationship with God, what causes the war is God is holy and perfect. He's without any spot or blame. He's completely and utterly blameless. He's God. Perfection. Glorious. And our sin puts us in a state where God can't look upon us and we become his enemies. And yet because of his great love for us, he wanted a way, a pathway, in which we could be saved. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The verses will be on the screen. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So today, you fill out a form. We just did this recently in our census. You send it into the government. In fact, you can do it online. You can just go on your computer, fill out the census data, send it into them. Censuses are things that have occurred throughout history. And in those days, the Roman Empire had taken over the whole area of Jerusalem, all of Israel. Rome was the conqueror of the day, the world power. And they said, we want a census. And they called for one. And as the male of your family, you were to go to the town of your family's origin. So for Joseph, that was Bethlehem. Now, why did they want to count? Did they just want to know how many people were under the Roman Empire? No. They wanted to know who they would extract tax from, and they wanted to know who they could enlist in war, who they could enlist as a soldier, who they could draft. The census were basically for two reasons, taxes and the army. Those are basically the two reasons for which they would call a census. And so Joseph's going to register to Bethlehem. Verse 4. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So he gets up and they go, this is about a 90-mile right? Journey. 90 miles. Mary's nine months pregnant. Can you imagine? I mean, many of you have been nine months pregnant. And imagine traveling nine months pregnant, 90 miles by foot. There was no Uber. Do you know in Newfoundland there's no Uber? I called, I said last night, I said, I'll, I'll get an Uber to the airport. They said, you can't. I, I tapped a button, and they were right. No Uber available. The newest Uber was, well, was a long way away, to be honest, because I was in Newfoundland. There's none in Newfoundland. Anyway, that's an aside. No Uber for Mary and Joseph, right? No taxi, no train. It was a walk. She would likely have been on a donkey, and they walked 90 miles to be counted because it was the law. And when it says Joseph was pledged to be married, it was because he had had no union with her yet. That didn't happen until after Jesus was born. And they go to this town, walking nine months pregnant to Bethlehem. And it fulfills the prophecy of Micah 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, 
from ancient times or ancient days. Verse 6 of Luke 2. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths. She placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So while they're there, her water breaks. Could you imagine? I mean, I was in the delivery room three times. We have four kids, but we have twins. And I remember being there the first time in the delivery room, and we'd gone through kind of all the prenatal stuff, right? Like, they prepare you. Not well. <laughs> and then I'm there in the room, and I remember I was trying to be so helpful. I was offering Amy popsicles and you know, whatever I could do. And at, at one point she said, I think you just need to go. Because Ethan was 10 pounds, two ounces, and they were having, they didn't understand he was that big. And Amy was pushing with all her might, and it wasn't going well. And I said, no, 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 it's fine. And the nurse said, she's right. She's right. So I, I left the room. And I came back in before Ethan was born, but I was there all three times. I could not imagine delivering my kids. I mean, Jewel and Ivy were emergency C-section. That's a whole other thing. But Mary's like, my water broke, and Joseph's like, all right, I got it. Can you imagine? Guys. Like, imagine, guys, you delivering your baby. Now, some of you may come to me after the service and said, I've done it, right? I know a couple of dads who've had to do it. That has not been my experience, and I'm praying as a grandfather, I never had that experience either. But it was Joseph's experience. There they are. 90 miles away from home, her water breaks, and Joseph's like, I've got this. There's no guest room available. Like in those days, there were no hotels, right? I stayed at three hotels this week. There were no hotels in those days. People would have a guest room on their home, maybe on a barn. But because people had gone to Bethlehem, not a big town, no one knows for sure. Estimates are between 1,000 and 2,000 people, under 2,000 certainly. And so it's a small town, so there's not a lot of room. But there's likely a stable, either a cave or a stable of some kind that has a room attached to it where they could stay maybe for a farmhand of some kind. But it would be with the animals. Wouldn't have been pretty. And the baby's born. Jesus and he's placed in a manger. If you've ever been at the birth of a child, it's a messy, bloody ordeal. I mean, we never have that at the manger scene. And I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying it was disgusting. It was birth, right? A mother crying, a dad in disbelief that he's delivering the Son of God. And I imagine in that moment, Mary and Joseph had a lot of questions. I mean, they're teenagers. Tim Keller says this, worry is believing God is, sorry, wor worry is not believing God will get it right. And bitterness is believing God got it wrong. Worrying is not believing God will get it right. And bitterness is believing God got it wrong. You can believe God. You can believe God. And Mary and Joseph did. He stayed with her. She said yes to having Emmanuel, God with us, 
and now they're in a manger, in a stable, giving birth to their son, God's son, in a manger. And I'm sure everything about this scene seems wrong to them. I mean, talk about worry. If you're someone who worries, could you imagine what that worry could have been like? Imagine how bitter you could have been? And yet there's no account of that in our Bibles. Mary and Joseph trusted God. When I was in Newfoundland this week, I, I uh, Thursday, Thursday, yes, I arrived in Newfoundland, and I sat around a table with 16 people. Church is only like 150 or 60 people on a Sunday. That's been established in Newfoundland, a Baptist church there with the Southern Baptist called CNBC in Canada. But there's 16 staff. Now you might wonder, how does a church that size have 16 staff? Because they've got 10 interns sitting around this table. 10 interns sitting around this table. When, when Steve and his wife Debbie were in PEI in a thriving ministry, and the ministry was just booming, they were burdened for Newfoundland. Because there's very little evangelical witness across Newfoundland, Newfoundland and, and Labrador. Just very little of it. And so they were burdened to go back, and so they went back. They established a Baptist church there. And now they've established a mission. And so then on Friday, with leaders of their denomination, I toured all parts of the city of St. John's and outside of St. John's, where planters are going and establishing works, where they're being trained by Steve and Debbie and others that have come in. And they're establishing these plants all around. But when you talk to Steve and Debbie, they were in a really comfortable church. Things were going really well. They had no desire to pick up and go to Newfoundland to do this, even though that's where they're both from. And yet as they prayed and as they agonized over what the Lord had in store next, the Lord said, this is where you're to go. And this is what you're to do. And he assumed he would just come and establish a church. He assumed he would just come and plant a church. But over the next two years, if the Lord allows, they're going to plant four churches. They're going to be birthed out of this. Two of them that will start in the next number of weeks. And the Lord's hand has been in something bigger because God chose to call them and they chose to listen. And in listening, the Lord has done something great. In fact, they bought a beautiful facility for $1.3 million that would have been listed at eight or nine million from the Catholic Church because it needed to sell it. And they have been able to renovate it and use it for Sunday worship. It's an incredible facility. There's a building out back that needs renovations. It's just studs um, and uh, like there's no heat, there's no hydro, there's nothing in it right now. It goes to the building, but not in the building for an intern training center. And they just believe that God's got this. Do you believe that about your life? That God's got it because God's got you. God's got whatever situation that's going on around you because God has you. Well, verse 8, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. They were keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they're terrified. So there the angels are, the shepherds are, I mean. Middle class. Right? Some make them to be like kind of the, the, the dirge of society. That's not shepherds. They, they, weren't, they weren't like the low-level class. They were middle-class workers. Night shift workers. Anybody here ever have to work night shift? There they are working night shift, keeping watch over the flocks, and an angel appears. 
That would be a pretty terrifying thing, wouldn't it? I mean, if you read the book of Isaiah, and you read the sixth chapter, when the angels appear uh, before Isaiah, if you ever tried to draw out what's described there or in parts of Revelation, these are horrifying-looking creatures. An angel appears. They're terrified, because whenever an angel appears, they assume there's judgment that's coming. But God's glory is shining around. And the angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah or the Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. Just unpack this for a moment. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The angel says to the shepherds, I don't want you to be scared right now. Why? We have good news of great joy. We have the best news possible. The angel says, I'm about to proclaim to you something that humanity has waited for for generations, for centuries. I have good news of great joy. Today in the town of David, today in Bethlehem, here where you are, who has been born? A Savior has been born. A Savior has been born. Psalm 25 reminds us that we were looking for a Savior. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. You see, here's the problem. All of us know that our lives have sin in them, that our lives are not perfect. And only that which is perfect can be in God's presence. Only that which is unblemished can stand before him. And all of us know when we look at our lives that we have sin. In any other religion, you study any other religion on the planet, and in any other religion on the planet, it is about you making your way to God. It's about doing enough. It's about performance. But in Christianity, it's the very opposite. It's about how God came down to us today in the town of David, a Savior, someone who can rescue you, someone who can come to your aid. A Savior has been born to you. Well, what qualifies him? What allows him to be the Savior? He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one God said would come. And more than that, he's the Lord. He's the Lord come down. He's God the Son. He's cloaked his deity with humanity. He's entered in. You see, we created such a mess that God came down to deal with it himself. God came down to be the Savior. He just didn't send some type of Hercules-like figure to come down and save us. He came down to save us. He entered in. What qualifies him? He's the Messiah. He's the one of whom all the promises are fulfilled in. And he's the Lord. He's the one who called the world into existence. He's the one who sustains it by his might and will. He is the one who holds everything together by his very might. He is the Lord. And he's wrapped himself into human form, cloaked his deity with humanity, 
been born in a stable and placed in a manger. And who is this good news for? It tells us it's for all people. It's for all people. I shared with you last week the story of Kesavan, um, Bella Singham. Right? If you weren't here, he was born in a Hindu home at the age of 19 when his best friend had been brutally beaten up by a rival gang. He showed up with his friends and he shot and killed a man. He was incarcerated for 10 years. So when I was riding with him this week and talking to him, I said, tell me more of your story. We're speaking at an event later this year. I, I've met him at meetings before, but I didn't know a lot of his story. I said, how did God save you? Like, what did God do in your life? Well, he was in maximum security, which meant he was 23 hours a day in isolation because of the way he had murdered a man. And he said as one prisoner was being released, he slid a Bible under the door for him. He gave him a Bible. English is his fourth language, Kesavan's fourth language. Could you imagine? I cannot imagine that. I have a hard enough time with one language. English is his fourth language. And when he opened up the Bible, he said this. It was the King James Version. And he said, I hated Shakespeare in high school. I hated English. I hated Shakespeare more. And he said, here is a King James Version. And he said, something happened in that moment. He said, the Lord gave me a delight for his word. I began to read in Genesis. And he said, I'm, I'm partway through Genesis. And I thought, man, these people are messed up. He's like, this is incredible. What's going on here? Like, I don't understand all the messed upness of the world. These are people just like me. And he said, I'm reading through this book of Genesis, and I realize that God's people are just like me. Finally, a gentleman said to him, have you read the New Testament? He said, what's a New Testament? He had no clue. So he started in the Gospel of Matthew. And he realized that for all of the world's messed upness, that God would one day cloak his deity with humanity and send a savior. One of the things I love about Kesavan is one of the things he's bullish about as a pastor is doctrine. He wants people to be accurate in their depiction of who God is and what God has done. And he has a passion for ethnic pastors to be able to be taught well so that as they teach, they teach well. And when I was with this denomination, in Atlantic Canada, they were creating a plan that would be across the nation for their ethnic pastors, because about 85% of their pastors in the large city areas are ethnic pastors, would be able to teach sound doctrine to their people. The Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. The Savior has come. He is Christ the Lord. Suddenly, verse 13, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God. Oh, may God be glorified. May he be honored. May be, he be exalted. May God be glorified in what he's doing right now. I mean, when you read scripture, what does it say about salvation? Even angels long to look into these things. There's no provision anywhere in Scripture for salvation for fallen angels. You know that, right? Maybe it's because of the proximity they had with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
But no provision is given for the demonic to be saved. And yet, when humanity rebelled, God's love for us was so great, God's care for us was so immense, that he wanted to provide a way that we could be saved, knowing we could never get to him, knowing we could never make our way to him. He came to us, born in a stable, placed in a manger. The Lord, the Messiah, the Savior came down so that in coming down, he could grant us salvation. He could be the one that could take our sin upon himself. That's what God has done. And he grants you peace. Peace with God. When he saves you, he grants you peace. God's now on your side. God's got your back. God's walking with you. It's why in Romans, Paul can say, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Is that not great news? I will not be condemned for my sin one day when I stand before the Father. He doesn't condemn me now, and I won't be condemned on that day because on the cross, Jesus took my condemnation. On the cross, Jesus took my penalty. On the cross, Jesus took my punishment, and he was condemned so that I could be declared innocent he was made guilty, though he be innocent, so I could be set free. And the only way we could be saved is if God himself came, and he did, and he humbled himself. And he was confined to a woman's womb, and he was wrapped in cloth, and he was placed in a manger, completely and utterly helpless. Oh, of course, protected by the Father and the Spirit, granted godly parents who were righteous, who loved Yahweh deeply to give us peace. Peace with God. If you're a believer today and the enemy ever tries to convince you that you are not saved, I want you to know this truth today. You are saved by the work of Christ. You are saved by his shed blood. Our salvation rests on what he has done, not what we have done. And our confidence rests in him, not in us. Is that not great news? My confidence rests in the work of God. And so I have peace. Peace between God and myself. Peace because he has saved me. Peace because he's delighted to open my eyes to the truth. Peace because he loves us that much. C.S. Lewis says this, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And so he restores the relationship with us and he grants us peace for our soul. So when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem, see what has happened, which the Lord told us about. They hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Mary treasured up all these things. She pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds see the angels. The angels depart, and they say, we got to go. They go to Bethlehem. It seems as they go, they're telling everybody what they've seen and heard. They get to the manger scene, 
And there they are, they're praising God, they're declaring what God has done. They become the first witnesses of the birth of Christ. They begin to declare what the angels have said. The Savior has come. The Messiah has come. The Lord has come. That's who's showing up. And this is good news of great joy for everyone. For anyone who would turn, for anyone who would believe, this is good news of great joy. They become these witnesses. And imagine Mary and Joseph who are there alone in a stable, just giving birth to Jesus. Joseph cleaning up the mess of birth. And the shepherds come and say, the angels told us. The angels? They would remember that. The angel appeared to Mary. An angel appeared to Joseph. The angels came. What did they tell you? What did they say? That this child you've given birth to, this child who's been born, he is good news of great joy. He is the Savior who's come. He is the promised one, the Christ. He is the Lord. I mean, imagine Mary and Joseph in that moment. I imagine through all of that, they're wondering, did we really both see an angel? I mean, is this really some type of, of, of virgin birth? Like, I mean, Lord, did we hear you right? I imagine Mary and Joseph in all of this are just thinking, why, why here in Bethlehem? What's going on? And then these shepherds show up, and as they show up, they're proclaiming and declaring what God has just done, and Mary and Joseph must have been like, thank you, Lord. We didn't lose our minds. Thank you, Lord. You're right here with us. Thank you, Lord. You've entrusted us with your son. Thank you, Lord. Mary treasured these things. She pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds went and told everyone what they had seen and heard. So here are these verses, and I'll close off in a moment. John 14, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, will remind you of everything I have said to you. So peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I give, do not give as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's not the way the world does it, Jesus says. My spirit is in you. So don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. My spirit is in you. If I call you to Newfoundland to plant churches all across Newfoundland and Labrador, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. If I call you over Christmas, to share faith with a neighbor or a friend or a colleague. Don't be afraid. My peace I give to you. My peace is with you. If I ask you to be reconciled with someone that you've had a hard time being reconciled with, if I ask you to forgive someone that you've had a hard time forgiving, if I ask you to be generous in a way that you've been unwilling to be generous, don't be afraid. My peace is with you. My peace I give to you. I will not give it the way the world does. The world just wants to be free from hostility. God wants to show you so much more. He's got your back. He's on your side. He's with you always to the very end of the age. In John 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Is that not great news?
our Savior Jesus, have overcome the world. Oh, you know this. If you haven't heard this before, so many of us will know this. Horatio Spafford, Presbyterian elder, right? Big, big supporter of D.L. Moody. In 1971, he was a lawyer. Huge fire hit Chicago. Wiped out a whole bunch of Chicago as it did so. Much of his investments were in real estate. He lost most of his money. In 1973, he was to go over to England on vacation and to support D.L. Moody, who was there, to meet with Moody and to be there as part of uh, the campaign that Moody was currently a part of. Some of his uh, uh, professional uh, just, just needs were there, and so he had to stay. He had requirements that just he had to stay with his law firm for a few more days. So Anna, his wife, and their four daughters went across the Atlantic. As they were traveling across the Atlantic, a large ship, an iron sailing vessel, hit their ship and sunk their ship. All four of their daughters died in that tragic accident. Their wife, his wife, Anna, was saved. And when she got to England, she telegrammed him, saved alone. That's all he got. Of course, he knew of the tragedy, saved alone. As he made his way over the Atlantic to England, the captain of the ship came to him and said, we're over the spot right now where the vessel that was carrying your wives and daughters was hit. And it's about three miles to the bottom of the ocean. And he knew that's where his bodies, the bodies of his daughters were. And as he was being carried over, he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Why could he pen those words? The Lord has come. The Savior has come. The Christ has come. It is good news of great joy for anyone who believes. He knew the Lord was with him. He knew the Lord hadn't left him. He knew that regardless of the tragedy he was facing, that God was still on his side. He knew that the Lord, the God Almighty of this universe, was still with him and had not left him, and that God would grant him the ability to continue to move on and to serve him, and that's exactly what the Lord did as he went to England to support D.L. Moody, to comfort his wife, and to continue on serving Christ with the gospel. Because God grants that kind of peace. I bring you good news of great joy. It's for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then the angels appear with a great host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. He is the Savior, amen. amen? He is Christ the Lord. He's come to save us from us, from our sin, grant us relationship with himself, and give us peace, peace between him and us, a peace that the world cannot understand, and a peace that the world can never take away. It is such good news. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. It's for everyone. 
Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom God's favor rests. And God's people said, Amen. And Merry Christmas.